Good morning. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Hope everybody had a good week. I know we got a lot of snow. And, uh, I feel like things that happen like that that totally throw off the rhythm of the week can be such a distraction sometimes. But it's good to be with you all today and worshiping our God today. So John chapter 17 verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your Son who came into the world, who had a glory before the world ever existed, the eternally glorious Lord Jesus, Lord We thank you for his ministry, that he came into the world, that he died for our sins, that he has risen to life. Lord, may we approach you in humility, Lord, and in awe of knowing of your greatness and majesty. Lord, in this day, amid the stresses of life and the struggles of the world, Lord, may that be what brings us our greatest joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins in the first question by asking, what is the chief end of man? And the response is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the glory of God? And what does it mean to you? How does it influence your daily life? How much does it influence your prayers? How much does it influence your thoughts about heaven? What does glory even mean? It's a word that gets mentioned a lot in the Bible and in church and in faith conversations. But how do you define glory? It's hard to define because we've never truly experienced it. I would suggest that true glory is so transcendent that it is really above what our language can fully describe. Maybe that's why the Bible uses so many metaphors and images to begin to describe God's glory. John Piper suggests that the glory of God is the manifestation of God's holiness. In other words, God's glory is the display of his awesome holiness. Our section this morning is a prayer that Jesus gives on the eve of the crucifixion. It's the longest prayer from Jesus that we see anywhere in the Bible. And the first five verses of this chapter, where we'll be today, revolve all around glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Today, we're going to look at three things revolving around glory. The glory of prayer, the glory of the gospel, and the glory of God. 
beginning with the glory of prayer. Just as a reminder, last week we finished up John 16, where Jesus was speaking to the disciples. In chapter 17, he's still speaking to the disciples, but the tone has changed from a speech to a prayer. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Verse 1 links us back to chapter 16 when it begins with, When Jesus had spoken these words, referring to what came before. So chapter 17 begins with that reference. And then he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, we've talked all throughout our study of John's gospel about this, but Jesus is continually referring to and pointing to his hour. And it's referring to the hour of his death and his glorification on the cross. And we've mentioned that several times in the last few weeks because in chapter 16, Jesus says it five times. But he keeps using the language that is pointing forward. Oftentimes... But not always, when Jesus refers to his hour, there's a distinct future aspect to it. That he's pointing forward to an hour that has not yet arrived. But now at the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I think that Tim Keller is helpful on these ideas. He points out that a number of the great prayers in the Bible revolve around glory. How do we pray? How do we tend to pray today? We tend to pray for things, and that's fine. We can bring our requests to God. In fact, the Bible tells us to do that. We should pray that way. But it isn't all that there is to prayer. And if we make our requests to God all that our prayer life is, it leads to prayer that's ultimately pretty dull. We can also make prayers of adoration that, re- that revolve around the glory of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul pretty quickly goes into prayer beginning in verse 16 when he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And we could read on. But there's a lot of loftiness in that section. He's not praying for a job promotion or to be able to have the courage and strength to put up with somebody who he can't stand. Not that there's anything wrong with praying for those things. But he's praying for the people to have their eyes enlightened to the glory of God. I must ask myself the same question that I'm about to ask you, but how often do our prayers revolve around that? How often are we praying like Paul prays in Ephesians 1? For me, not enough. Not nearly enough. Again, he's praying for spiritual blessings, knowledge of God, the greatness and power of God. There's a way to pray that is truly transformational in our time with God. 
in our approach to God and to our expectancy. Again, so often we pray for ourselves and others to endure hardships and get past things. And again, we should pray for those things. But how often are we remembering God's glory in our prayers? How often are we praying for greater knowledge of God and spiritual blessings? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But it's hard to do that if there isn't a certain loftiness to our prayers. If there's no adoration as to the greatness of God. If there's no meditation on the righteousness of God. In Exodus 33... The Israelites have been through a lot in their desert wanderings. They've had food shortages, water shortages. They're still in the desert. They're exiles without a home. They've had issues with sin. In spite of all of this, God has provided for them. He has led them. The Israelites have rebelled. They've complained. They've grumbled. Moses has had to deal with all of this and leading the Israelites. In Exodus 33, 18, amid all of this, we see something that he prays for. What is it? Moses said, please show me your glory. And so the Lord allows his goodness to pass by Moses so that he is able to behold the glory of the Lord. And it's an awesome experience. So awesome that Moses' face shines brightly as a result of being exposed to God's glory. His face shines so brightly in Exodus 34 that the Israelites are fearful and Moses has to wear a veil to cover up his luminescent face. In our passage, Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Again, that's how he begins his prayer on the eve of going to the cross. We see a mutuality in glory between the father and the son. Jesus desires to glorify the Father. The glory of the Father and of the Son go hand in hand. And the Spirit, although the Spirit is not mentioned in this passage. But we know based on other texts that the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal in glory. Jesus prays for his own glory, not out of selfishness or vanity, but it's because as Jesus is glorified in going to the cross, God is also glorified. In Jesus being glorified, that glorification reveals the truth that Jesus himself is the Son of God. I mentioned Moses a few moments ago and how he had to wear a veil. Paul will pick up that theme in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul is saying is that we can behold the glorious Christ as his people. In looking to Christ at his glory, gospel, holiness, and majesty, that it is transformational, that it changes us. And that's why it matters that our prayers have an emphasis on glory. We too often have too low a view of prayer. Jesus prays all throughout the Bible. Jesus is the most holy, the most righteous person who has ever lived. And yet he prays. To quote from Tim Keller, we see prayer as medicine. Jesus sees it as food. We see prayer as a vitamin to supplement our strength. Jesus sees it as a whole new diet. 
a whole new way of living. There must be riches in prayer we don't know anything about. We only pray when we feel like we've blown it. Jesus never blows it, but Jesus is praying all the time. In this great prayer that Jesus gives, the first and most important aspect of his prayer is glory, both of God and of himself. But again, the glorification of the one leads to the glorification of the other. And as both the heart of prayer and an essential aspect of our prayer life, that we come and love the glorious Lord of creation. We come to our second point, the glory of the gospel. Uh, second part of verse 1 through the end of verse 2. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 2 carries over the idea of glory in the gospel and the eternal life which Jesus gives. Jesus says that he has been given authority over all flesh. Now that can be somewhat confusing at first glance. It's a bit of a play on words. Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, which is to say he's been given authority over all of humanity. Yet it is he who will soon allow his flesh to be broken for humanity on the cross. Every emphasis on this verse is the sovereign work of God, which, among other things, reminds us that the grace is a gift, not something that we earn. And then in verse 3, Jesus summarizes eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just some vague concept of God, but it is knowing the Lord God Almighty and that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God who reveals God and through whom we have eternal life. In going to the cross, in dying for our sins and raising from the dead so that we can have eternal life, Jesus reveals that he's the only one who could die for humanity. Because he rose to life. So we talk about the glory of the gospel. Now, it must be also understood that God is inherently glorious. It's not that he was less glorious or was inglorious before the cross. Psalm chapter 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens and many other places we can look at. We see glory in the holiness of God. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of a throne room of heaven. Isaiah chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees that awesome and glorious 
presence of God, and he is immediately reminded of his own sin and unworthiness. Verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God's glorious presence is meant to be overwhelming and awesome. And again, God and Christ are both glorified in the gospel. He is glorified for redeeming a sinful humanity. Sometimes people ask, we talked about this last Sunday night. Sometimes people ask, why would a good and loving God send anyone to hell? But I think the better question is, why would a just God allow anyone into heaven? Our world loves the message of cheap grace. We chalk up sin to nobody's perfect and then treat our willful disobedience to God Almighty as if it's a toddler who just doesn't know any better. But when we begin to understand our sin, that we're sinners, that we have transgressed, we have the commands of God and willfully disregard them, we have the things the Bible teaches and find our own justifications to ignore it, what is that? It's sin. It's a heart that's sinful. It's pride. It's the pride of thinking that we're smarter than God, that we know better, that his word doesn't apply. But then we begin to realize our sinfulness. Our world likes to skip that part in the gospel and just go to forgiveness. But the forgiveness isn't very meaningful if you don't know that you've sinned. So our world likes to go to affirmation, telling you you're good, telling you you're okay. And yet our society is miserable. I would submit that it's because our world, modern America, has created a sinless false gospel. We want an easy gospel that affirms sin doesn't disrupt our lives. In our world, the only sin is judgment. The only sin is moral gumption. Saying something is not right is what's not right. Everything else is all right. And yet, we're miserable. Mental illness is through the roof. Anxiety and depression are through the roof. We have an absolutely out-of-control drug problem in this country. Even before COVID, these were significant issues. The issue is not just that we need to be, keep being told we're okay and doing okay enough times. Because in our heart of hearts, we know that's not true. We know there's something wrong. We need to be confronted with the reality of our own sinfulness. Our sinfulness, our sins, things that are our fault, not our parents' fault, not the government's fault, not society's fault, not social media's fault, not our spouse's fault, not our siblings' fault, not our children's fault, not our circumstances' fault, our fault, our sins. Because we choose to sin. We have a higher view of our wisdom and our desire than for God's wisdom and for God's righteousness when we sin. And it matters that we recognize this. Because the higher our view for sin, then our, the higher our view for grace. It's hard to appreciate grace if you think that your sin isn't such a big deal. But then the person who realizes that they're sinful and who tries to change that, tries to live righteously, 
really tries to be a good person. And you realize, even when I try, I'm still not that good at this. For the person who sees 10 areas of your life where you know you need to change, and you feel like you don't know where to begin. For a person who sits up at night and feels the dread and darkness in their own heart, their selfishness, the hurtful things you've done, the things you've done that have caused others pain. For the person who truly begins to appreciate the magnitude of their own sin and the impact of their own sin, and who hears the message of the gospel, that we have a Savior who invites us in, who forgives us, who loves us, and not just an empty love, a Savior who loved us enough to die for us, a Savior who really knows us, knows how imperfect we are, knows the darkness in our hearts, knows the things about us that we try to hide from everyone else, and that he died for you. But not only did he die for you, he also lived for you. He lived the perfect life that you could not live and died the death that you deserved so that you could be forgiven. And his perfect life, he revealed the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the presence of God, the wisdom of God, and the glory of God. And in his glory, Jesus represents the true son, the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true Israel, the true Sabbath, the true presence, and the true glory of God in the world. And we come to our third point, the glory of God, verses 4 and 5. Jesus continues to pray, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Very deep. As we saw in the beginning of this passage, Jesus is praying again for his own glory. And we've touched on this already. But Jesus glorifies God and Jesus is glorified by God. Very briefly, let's talk about theology. Jesus glorified God during his ministry in being submissive to the will of God and in that, fulfilling the divine plan for salvation. Now, we've already talked about how God is inherently glorious. In the text, Jesus says that he had glory with the Father before the world existed. That can be an easy idea to take for granted, but it's significant. It once again, once again points us to the eternality of Christ. Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a great teacher. He's the eternally glorious Lord. And yet he left heaven to come to his own fallen world. He left heaven to come to his world that he created. And his own fallen world killed him. That's why the gospel is so glorious. The fact that Jesus says that he had glory before the world existed is an important reminder that he has always been glorious. Jesus did not have to earn his glory. It's not that he was inglorious and then came into the world and did the gospel thing and finally earned glory. It's not like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life where Clarence is trying to become an angel and has yet to earn his wings. It's not that Jesus has to earn being glorified. He's already glorious. But in God the Son coming into the world and living as one who is fully God and fully man, as a result of his perfect life, 
There is a glory in the resurrection due to the supreme humility of his coming into the world in submission to God and fulfilling God's plans. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 talks about Christ's humility. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That there's a glory in Jesus coming into the world. So Jesus is divine, yet became a servant. He is greater than us, yet became one of us. So that we can be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. That's glorious. But sadly, we so often get bogged down in the stresses and difficulties of life. We so often get caught up in doing our own things that we overlook the glory of Christ. Sure, we might believe that Jesus is glorious, but does it affect you? I asked in the beginning, how much does it influence your daily life? How much does it influence your prayers? How much does it influence your view of heaven? Because it should mean everything to us. It's not meant to be something that we give the occasional passing thought to. It is meant to be our greatest joy. But as fallen and finite people, it's hard. The purpose of life is living to the glory of God. Yet, because of our sin, we don't. And even as Christians, we often get sidetracked and live lives that are not primarily focused on the glory of God. On meditation on this glorious God of creation. On looking to his perfect and glorious son who has promised eternal life and died for us. Instead, we get so focused on our pursuits and the stresses of everyday life. And the tragedy is that we too often miss out on actually enjoying God. Because we too often think that what will make us happy, what will bring us joy, what will bring us contentment, will be the things of this world, the goals of our own lives, the securities of this world, the things that other people tell us we should pursue. And in that, we lose sight of the glory of God. In The Weight of Glory, which was a sermon by C.S. Lewis, he argues that humanity aims far too low. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. We have too low a view of God's glory. Yeah, we know we're supposed to say that his glory matters. But I think if we're being honest, there's a temptation to think that other things in life are ultimately more glorious. Other things in life are ultimately more enjoyable. But why is that? Several reasons. First, we're sinful. I mean, that is at the root of sin is man's attempt to rob God of his glory. And so it stands to reason that we look to ourselves, to the world, to humanity, to find real joy and glory. It's the essence of idolatry. Worshipping creation over the creator. Worshipping the things that God has given us over God himself. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says, 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. So what Romans 1 is saying is that we focus on the things of this world over the glory of God. So that's the first issue. We want to search for glory in other things. We're influenced by a world and a society that does not value God. And so there's a constant pressure and temptation to just follow the ways of the world. Another challenge is that we never see perfection in our own lives. The gospel, creation, the Bible, all points us to the glory of God. But it is still not the same as being with God and personally experiencing his glory. And since we have no idea of that which is actually perfect, it is hard for us to begin to imagine what perfection can actually be like. But we get glimpses. There are moments that give us awe. Memories that give us this sense of nostalgia and a longing to go back, to recreate it. But it feels like we can never quite make it. Moments of awe, moments of transcendence, moments that take your breath away and amaze you. Those moments are pointing us to the glory of God and the glory that we were created to eternally enjoy. I think of Christmases when I was a child. There was a certain magic to them. And I feel like that went away a long time ago. And every year at Christmas, I feel like I'm trying to get it back. But it always seems elusive. Once again, from the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis would argue that it was never Christmas itself. It was never the thing itself, but rather what it pointed to. Quoting now from Lewis, he says, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find ourselves in even now, I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have never found, the echo of a tune we have never heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. End quote. We get these glimpses, we get these moments of awe, and yet we settle for so much mediocrity. We aim so low. We're too easily pleased. We are made for infinite joy and happiness by a glorious God. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. But again, we've never truly seen perfection, that unmitigated glory. And so in one sense, it's 
impossible for us to truly begin to imagine in this life. When we talked about heaven a couple years ago, we talked about how our popular culture, when you see movies and TV shows and cartoons, always makes heaven seem so boring. We picture white robes and harps and clouds, and we're told that's what all of eternity will be like. Well, that doesn't sound so great. And so it's no wonder that we act as if this life, this world, is the pinnacle of our existence. But in heaven, in the presence of God, we behold the glory of God, the perfection, the awesome holiness of the eternal God of the universe. We're in a place in heaven where there is no stress and nothing to worry about. It's a place where there's no death or sickness or sin. And where you see the glory of God. It's amazing. We reread the same books. We'll chat with friends and retell stories we've already experienced. We'll watch and rewatch the same favorite movies or TV shows. Some of you, I'm sure, eat the same thing for breakfast and or lunch every day. We have routines that we do every day. Eternity in heaven with a glorious God is something which we will never tire of. Being in the presence of God and hearing the tune that we can never quite place. Or smelling the flower, the scent we had never quite known. It's finally having a sense of wholeness and rightness because it is there in the presence of God. That we are most fully human. Because we are most fully and actively doing what we were made for. To glorify God. There is nothing higher than the glory of God. There is nothing greater than the glory of God. There can be nothing more fulfilling than the glory of God. But again, as sinful people, we bristle at the idea of a glorious God. Why is it so hard to imagine? We love to glorify the things we love. You find a new restaurant that has amazing food, you tell other people about it. You find a great deal at a store, you mention it to your friends. You start watching a new show that's hilarious, and you tell everyone you know. We love to glorify what we love. Another C.S. Lewis idea, but he argues that to complete the process of actually enjoying something naturally leads to praise. It's almost like the enjoyment is incomplete until we've given praise and glory to the thing. But magnify that times infinity with an infinitely glorious God. The ultimate one who deserves our praise and honor and glory is the God who made us and his son who saved us. How do we get that? We must understand that it will never be perfect in this life. But today, we can glorify God. We can do that through prayer, as we've discussed. We can do that through worship. And we can do that through our lives. But when we pray, don't just lazily pray, God, show me your glory. It didn't work. And then give up. It needs to be a heart and mind that revolve around the truth of a glorious God. When we worship, 
Are we worshiping just to check the box for that week? Are we worshiping so that we feel a certain way? Are we worshiping just so we can see our friends? Or are we worshiping the glorious Lord who loves us and made us and knows us? And when we live for him, are we really living for him or just living for ourselves? It will be imperfect. But we can rejoice by knowing that it is a foretaste of greater things to come. We can glorify the Lord today while knowing that there is a future promise of a greater glory in his presence. Glorifying God and living to the glory of God is not a hobby. It's not meant to be something that we do on the side or when we get a few minutes, but to be the focus of our entire lives. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. Lord, may we have hearts and eyes and minds that are open and enlightened to your glorious and glory and majesty over your creation. Lord, and to that day we eternally praise you. May we look to Christ and be transformed by one degree of glory to the next. May we have lives where our eyes are constantly on Christ. Lord, may we grow in greater knowledge and intimacy of you and your greatness and of your Son who has come into the world. Lord, may we have a high view of your glory because it is why we were made. And may we come with delight and enjoyment in giving you glory and knowing that you are glorious. Lord, let us not get focused on just little trivial things, but Lord, that we have an almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.